five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. This is the SpaceCube Podcast. SpaceCube produces more than just this podcast. I encourage you to visit our website at spacecube.ca to check out the latest news and original stories written by myself and our other writers. We cover the space sector in Canada, along with select international stories, including new space. We also publish a newsletter with the latest stories from ourselves and other trusted sources, along with some information and analysis that you won't find on our website. For more coverage of the global space sector and the U.S., please visit our affiliate sites, spaceref.com, nasawatch.com, and astrobiology.com. If you like what we do, then please support us on Patreon. Our Patreon address is patreon.com slash SpaceQ. We need your support to keep producing this podcast and writing original, impactful stories. My guest this week is Rafael Yorda Siquier, CEO of Open Cosmos. Rafael and some of his colleagues had an idea 10 years ago to make space more accessible. To bring that idea to fruition took many years of schooling and then working in the industry. The result was the creation of Open Cosmos a company dedicated to providing inexpensive space missions using small satellites in low-Earth orbit and eventually beyond low-Earth orbit. Not content just to build satellites, they offer an end-to-end service. From the satellite to procuring the launch, arranging ground station access for data, and even making sure all the proper paperwork for whatever regulatory needs are in place. The story of how Open Cosmos came to be its philosophy, mission, and success to date are when all entrepreneurs and those wanting to create a new space company should hear. Welcome, Rafael, to the SpaceQ podcast. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. So whenever I have a startup uh, company on the show, I like to start with the journey on how they got to where they are now. Uh, it provides useful information for others thinking of starting a new space company. So how did you get your start in the space sector? <laughs> so that's, that's a very good question. So I started and I founded Open Cosmos two and a year, two and a half years ago. Uh, but the story goes way back to the times where I was still a student about 10 years ago at, at the university, at the Polytechnical University of, of Catalonia in Barcelona. And uh, there, I, uh, alongside with some of, of, of my colleagues, uh, we started a project where we took pictures uh, from the stratosphere using helium balloons. And uh, that inspired us, actually, because uh, in one of those pictures we realized that at uh, um, an altitude of around 40 kilometers high, we could appreciate the curvature of Earth and the blackness of, of sky at plain day. And we felt like space technology was closer to us than what we thought. And from that moment onwards, uh, it became my obsession and actually the obsession of a few of the team members that, had, that joined Open Cosmos in the early days uh, once I founded the company. And uh, that obsession was uh, to make space uh, accessible, easier, and not to make a space technology something fancy, but rather something that can be used and useful. 
And um, I just wanted to learn everything about how to make that possible. So um, uh, even before uh, finishing my, my master's degree as an aerospace and uh, a space engineer at, at the Polytechnical University of Catalonia, I joined a space startup called Zero to Infinity when I wa where I was involved as one of the uh, first engineers working on space tourism and building capsules that were also putting things into, into the stratosphere. And then I was recruited by Airbus Defense and Space, and I, I learned a lot about the other corporative side. And about uh, two and a half years ago, I realized that even if, if I was learning a lot, and even if it was um, uh, the companies where I was working were involved in a space, it would have been very, very, very difficult to actually make a, a, a space technology really, really available to the masses through that path. And I decided to, to leave Airbus and to start my own company uh, called Open Cosmos. So this is a little bit the, the story up until the moment where we got started there. So you, you've actually worked as, after you left university, you, you, you worked in a startup and then you've worked at uh, Airbus. So you've already had the experience of, you know, a, a startup and you've had the experience of working at a very large uh, company. So... Um, you then began, uh, you participated in the Entrepreneur's First Incubator Program. Tell me about the program and how it helped you. Yes, that was a very important moment. So when I had to start the company, there was a big decision to, to be made, which was, where do I start? It? Do I do it in the U.S. or do I do it in Europe? And uh, among, uh, we applied to incubators at both sides, and uh, uh, one of the incubators that welcomed us uh, to, to join the program was Entrepreneur First in London. Uh, and that was one of the best decisions that we took, but because the environment at, at Entrepreneur First was exhilarating, it was, uh, it's the perfect place to start a company. Literally what they do is they take uh, the best technical talent that they can find around the world in any field, uh, mostly are computer scientists and, and computer engineers, but they are also working with a broad scope of, of talent from different sectors. And they put them together in order to generate new companies. Uh, so you don't have to join Entrepreneur First with an idea or with a business model, but rather just with, with the will to found and the ambition to found something. In my case, I was already going there with, with a consolidated idea, as I mentioned, some initial commercial traction and uh, also opportunities of, 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 of having investment from, from investors. So I was not the typical EF founder, uh, but the program really, really helped me uh, get started. And what I saw around me were a bunch of extremely talented people, all of them trying to fund their own companies, most of them in the software domain, going very fast, and I, in my case, was trying to build a satellite hardware, software, and service company, uh, which, which happened to, to be a bit more challenging when going uh, towards the speed. And I think that we got a lot of that speed in our DNA, and that's one of the reasons why Open Cosmos have been moving so quickly and so far in the, in the space mission of, um, procurement, uh, if you compare it to the traditional space sector. Now... I'm curious, because you, you actually have done quite a bit in, in the three years since the company was founded. Um, did the Entrepreneur First program provide you a lot of uh, contacts that then helped you when it came time to 
growing the company and uh, getting the financing? It was massively helpful in that, indeed. But it, it's an amplifier of your work. That's that's what entrepreneur first does best. So. Um, the decision of joining Entrepreneur First was based on, on, on the three main things that I believe they could help me at in, in the very early beginning. First, uh, as, as you mentioned, is getting into this network. Bear in mind that I had been a few times in the UK, but I had not uh, a network either on the investment side or on potential partnerships in the UK. So when you land into a new country and you have to develop at the same time a company from scratch, uh, you want to surround yourself with an environment that, that is supportive. And uh, I really found that at, at Entrepreneur First, in all fields, by the way, uh, when we're looking for talent, we're looking for funding, uh, we're looking for mentorship and advice. Um, they, they put together a package that is very welcoming uh, for the entrepreneurs. Then the, the second thing that I was looking for when, when joining Entrepreneur First was uh, access to, 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 to technical talent. So I was aware that not everyone that starts or tries to start a company uh, can succeed at doing that. And in many cases, not because they are not excellent engineers or excellent technical talent, but because the idea sometimes is not right or the, the market is not mature enough in order to succeed. And uh, I was aware that if we were to build up in Cosmos, we needed to get the best very early and with the right mindset. And that was the second thing. So first thing would be like the financial uh, network and, and, and the um, environment. Second would be the access to talent. And the third, it was that, that it was in the UK and the UK has a, a very supportive uh, approach towards the space industry. Uh, it's one of the main technological areas that they want to encourage the development as a strategy, as a national strategy. And uh, since I saw that they wanted to capture 10% of, of the global market um, as one of the strategic goals of the government, I thought, well, this is the place to be because uh, only if companies like ours can grow and be successful, that milestone will be achieved. So I, I, I thought that that would be very, very, very useful as well. So that's a very important point that you make, that, uh, that the UK made it a government priority to, to try and capture 10% of, of the market. And so that uh, attracted you to, to go to the UK. So when you went to the UK, you became based at Harwell, which is the UK's science and technology hub, and it includes the space cluster. Uh, what's been your uh, experience working there? Would you recommend it to other uh, new space companies? Yes, absolutely. The, the environment here is, again, uh, perfect to grow in the space sector. Uh, we are very close to the European Space Agency headquarters in the UK. There are uh, massive facilities that we can leverage on in order to manufacture our satellites, a nourished network of, of suppliers and, and manufacturers for both electronics but also mechanical components. Uh, and, and obviously, um, a, a campus and an area that is very, very driven uh, by science and by the space sector mainly. So it's growing. It's it's still in its infancy because I believe that the campus got started like three or four years ago, maybe five. Uh, but but it's growing extremely fast and it's becoming, I would say, uh, the main hub or one of the main hubs for the space industry in the UK. And they also have the ESAPIC, which is the, the European Space Agency Business Incubator, 
uh, where we are where we are still uh, based and where we are taking most of our offices from. And uh, this has allowed us also to, to tap into that network uh, within the European Space Agency. Um, so for those countries that don't have something like a science and technology hub that the UK has, um, is the Harwell model um, something that other countries should imitate? Well, I, I don't know enough about taking decisions at, at the country level. I can tell you that um, having an environment where you can meet literally customers every single day and meet partners and uh, have a, a reunion point where, where people can meet in order to discuss business and accelerate things definitely helps both startups and big players. Um, Communication and being able to move quickly whenever you are working at the business level is key, and these hubs certainly help uh, that happen. And okay, so let's let's move on to um, your first satellite. Um, you became uh, a part of the Q European Commission QB50 program, and for the Canadians listening, AlbertaSat was uh, also a part of that here in Canada and has successfully launched their, their satellite. So you actually participated in that program too, but you didn't do it quite the way other con or other uh, I suppose entities did. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about that story about how you got involved and, and your first satellite. Yes, it's a crazy story, actually. So this was uh, the third month of the company. <laughs> so uh, what happened is uh, uh, when I started the company, the first thing I realized is that I needed to get some revenue from customers pretty quickly if I didn't want to die early. And uh, we started selling educative boards that, that we call CANSATs to, to the European Space Agency. So students all over Europe could start using that technology in order to learn how to build satellites. And that allowed us to have like the first revenue uh, for the first month so I could start paying for the early employees that were joining. When I had that first initial problem solved, which was by the month two or three of the company, I started becoming obsessed in accelerating the development of the actual space technology and therefore finding someone to whom we could provide not only a satellite, but, but a mission, right? And uh, I became aware of, of QB50. It had been a, a program that I had been following for six years as just out of interest and to know what, how, how the scientific community was developing a constellation to, to perform science with people from different countries. And uh, when, 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 I, when I started Open Cosmos, I realized that out of the 50 teams that had to deliver satellites, uh, I think it was nearly half of them announced that they wouldn't be able to deliver the satellite in time, even though they had been working in the design and, and the, the manufacturing of some of those satellites for over six years, I believe, right? So uh, the, the moment that I realized that and that the launch opportunities and everything was fully funded by the European Commission, I decided to to start cold calling uh, the, the people who were managing the program and asking them if they would like me to deliver a satellite uh, under the, 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 the program to fly one of the payloads that the Von Karman Institute and that the, the, the scientific uh, players were, were putting together to be flown. 
the, the, the obvious initial answer was, yeah, you and how many more people are going to, <laughs> to deliver a satellite because we need to be launching them in, in a rocket that will be, will be launching in eight months. So how, how are you going to do that? He said, don't worry about that. Uh, consider me a backup, a backup team. I will partner with, with the university and we'll make sure that uh, we keep you updated with, with, with the progress. So uh, just consider this as an opportunity to get another of your payloads out there uh, with, with a satellite that hopefully will be the first open Cosmos satellite. Uh, I, I must be really, really honest. When I started the project, I saw that as a catalyzer for the development of our technologies and as a catalyzer for the development of our service. Uh, not in my best dreams, I was neither to the, the, the QB50 program managers nor to, to anyone that I was engaging uh, promising that we would be delivering. <laughs> it was a, a huge challenge, but it's a challenge that we successfully achieved. So um, as a matter of fact, we hit every single milestone. Uh, we went through four iterations, for instance, of, of our own onboard computer in less than, than uh, two months, uh, we finally delivered the satellite, which I believe was the first satellite delivered of the entire QB50 program. And uh, that happened in, in uh, a bit less than six months. So, uh, and yes, that satellite uh, was, was delivered uh, to the International Space Station, uh, Space Station from where it was deployed. And it's still currently in orbit, fully operational and functional, uh, which we are very, very proud of. Okay, so that leads me into uh, what your business is today. Um, so my understanding is that your aim is to provide a one-stop shop for customers who are looking to launch a payload to orbit in uh, in orbit for a small satellite with a small satellite. Can you explain uh, the business model for our listeners? Yes, absolutely. So. To be absolutely precise, we have two types of customers. One that come, as you well said, uh, with a payload that they want to fly into orbit, and some others that come with a specific data requirements of service requirements. So they say, I want images in this resolution of this area in this band. Okay, And um, what, what we do is we offer a full solution uh, to achieve that. If they need to fly a payload, we uh, manufacture the satellite for them, we integrate that payload, we perform all the proper testing, we find the right launch opportunity and the ground segment, and even operate them in, in their behalf, uh, providing the results of the payload or the results of the, of the sensor that they are flying right into their database or their computer. Similarly, for the, for the data customers, in that case, we even find them the right payload uh, to, to generate that data. So as you well said, what we do is we, we provide simple and, and affordable uh, space missions as, a, as an end-to-end -end service, as a, a full one-stop shop service. So let's talk about uh, the cost of your mission and also let's talk about some of your customers now. So what's the, the, the range in costs for your missions? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a very a very good question. So uh, our missions can range from right now anywhere from a three unit uh, nano satellite up to a twelve unit nano satellite. And in the twelve unit nano satellite, if we play very smartly, we can fly payloads of up to twenty kilograms maximum. Um, we, on top of that, offer all the rest of the services. So don't think of our missions only as providing a piece of technology or a satellite, but actually providing that working in orbit. That means that we have agreement with all the major launch suppliers, for instance. Uh, we have agreement with the major ground segment suppliers, so we can use the ground station that they have deployed all over the world to satisfy the needs of our customers. The start selling point for uh, the most simple mission that we can offer right now, which would be in the range of this three unit uh, CubeSat, and I'm talking about the entire missions, uh, starts at half a million pounds. Um, and we, we, we are very comfortable uh, delivering at that sort of, of price point as a start. If people require higher performance, bigger satellites, a specific launch opportunities to a specific orbits, or any sort of additional um, needs, of course, the, the price of the mission might change uh, depending on their requirements. But you can take half a million as the starting point. Uh, what would be the, the top end cost? So, uh, really, if you think about it, uh, there is no top. I would struggle to see how one of these satellites could cost several tens of million. But if you start asking uh, to go, for instance, well, yeah, there is a very simple case. If someone wants to go to a Mars orbit <laughs> or wants to have an interplanetary uh, solution, uh, the, the launching cost will be a lot higher. At the moment, all of our customers are in, in low Earth orbit, but we have indeed uh, lately been, been asked if, if we would be able to support lunar missions, for instance. And uh, in those cases, the launching cost would be significantly higher. Okay. It was my understanding that you were mostly in the low Earth orbit, but obviously the market is evolving, and so there's going to be opportunities there. So tell me how you managed to secure that contract with ESA for their uh, Pioneer program. Yes, yeah, so it was out of... Um, uh, the, the way that we do these things here at Open Cosmos is we usually just talk about what we have done. So uh, I literally went one day to ESA. They were looking at what we were doing in terms of of uh, of the satellite technology that we had, and obviously we were also in ca on campus. And uh, they asked us what we had achieved so far, and I believe that the moment that they realized that we had one satellite uh, being launched, that uh, we had done all of that in one in one uh, in, in less than one one year, and it was nearly the first year of the company, and we were at that stage. They became uh, really intrigued. In parallel to that, there was a program, uh, a European Space Agency program called Artist Pioneer, under which they try to literally incentivize people to help building entire. Uh, space missions, a uh, space mission service. And uh, we saw a really, really, really good fit within that program. And we decided to, to uh, apply to procure to the European Space Agency an entire mission for them that would demonstrate a, tele a telecommunication technology that was of, of their interest. Uh, and um, they had one that uh, one of the companies in the UK had been developing over uh, eight years, I believe. 
and uh, we 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 won the the possibility of of launching that entire mission for them. So that's the first contract that that we we signed commercially as as a. Uh, as for uh, space missions, and again, it was a, a major milestone for us because imagine a company that, in one year, had gone from a sole founder to a team of uh, eight people back in those days, uh, signing a contract to deliver entire space missions to the European Space Agency. So it was a, a massive step forward uh, for us. And how much was that contract worth? So when you look at the overall mission, it was close to two million, uh, and this is a combined uh, contract, two million euros. I mean, and this was a combined contract that that included the first mission and a potential second satellite that we will be at right now actually also procuring for for the telecommunication company that that is called Itui that is is delivering a, a telecommunication service in in that field. And we announced recently that uh, uh, at the satellite 2000, at the satellite of this year uh, in, in Washington, that we, we would be providing two missions uh, for E2E to actually demonstrate this service fully. So again, this is another more recent milestone, but it's another one that we are very excited for because this means that is a, a recurrent customer that that really, really sees the value in what we are doing and wants to partner very closely in order to develop their, their full vision. And when will the first satellite launch for uh, ESA? So there is one uh, quarter, uh, uh, first quarter of next year. Okay. Um, we are now in conversations with, we would love to speed that up. Uh, but obviously, um, there is an alignment not only from, from our side on the technology, but also from their side on the payload and, of course, also on the service that they want to align on that. So uh, the, the launch is, is right now scheduled for quarter one of 2019. And who, who have you contracted, if you can tell me, to, to launch that? We have we have agreements with with all the major already. So we have capacity to launch. We have flexibility. Uh, we see Vector as as a potential uh, a potential launcher. They they achieve the milestone of of deploying the first rocket in orbit uh, this 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 year. Uh, I think that they are targeting. Uh, an orbital launch in in July. We also see other possibilities. As as I mentioned, we have launch launch opportunities among the major suppliers. And the specific one that will be launching this satellite is still under under final discussions. Okay, um, so Open Cosmos was founded almost three years ago. Uh, you've done a lot in that time. How has the company mission evolved or the company evolved over that time? Is it, it what you see today? Is, is it what you expected when you first started? It's very aligned, actually. Um, I think we've nailed on, 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 on detecting very early the need that there was for uh, space missions rather than uh, subsystems or pieces of technology. Customers, and particularly customers from other industries, they want to see um, a full solution. And this is this is what I suspected when, when we were thinking on, on how the space technology can further disrupt other industries. And this is why we got very early validation uh, from, from our customer base. So, I think that in terms of the vision, it hasn't changed that much. Uh, actually, it hasn't changed at all. 
Um, on the education, we've, we've, we, we have adapted our products and our services uh, through several iterations actually to exactly what we believe the, the customers and the end users needs. And I can put you an example of that. Uh, at the beginning, what I was thinking was that we would be able to literally have a fully standard satellite where the, the custom, we would be able to adapt through interfaces the payloads from any customer to that standard satellite. And very early in, during the first year, I, we realized that technically that would be a, a much more complex problem and much different problem. So we developed another product, uh, uh, and it's actually two products. Uh, one that we call, we call our satellites QB, uh, our BIS. And uh, we, call, we have two products, one that we call QB Kit and QB App. Uh, that we provide to our customers very early, even before they have designed a mission, so can they can make their technology compatible with the interfaces of our satellite, both mechanical and electrical, without having to pay for an engineering model or for a, uh, yeah um, any sort of flat satellite development on on the ground. And uh, what this means is that they can, without having to spend a lot of money, start developing a technology that can be easily flown thereafter. This is on the hardware side and on the software side. The QB app product that I was mentioning before is a full mission simulation that has a massive database with not only our subsystems, but third-party subsystems and payloads and a, a simulation environment where you can do full mission analysis, power budgets, um, telecommunication budgets and uh, um, that takes also the information from the real launch opportunities and real ground segment availability so the mission can be designed from day one with real information and real data and this has become one of our key um, key technologies uh, it's one that we have actually patented because it enables our customers to develop their technologies or their services significantly faster and much cheaper. And once they have it ready there, we literally take that payload or take that technology and put it into the, the real satellite that has all the real space-graded subsystems, keeping full quality control, not leaving a, a clean room through the process, and being able to speed up all the, all the further developments. This, this, this process, and uh, these uh, sort of, of products, I, I didn't envision them in the very early beginning when we were thinking about the vision. This came when we realized what our customers were struggling with and what our customers, the, the, the pains that the customers were, were suffering. Uh, and I, I believe that is, is one of the things that is is bringing most value and most interest from, from our customers right now. This capability of developing technology at another pace and, and cost structure. In, in terms of payloads, um, are you restricted by the platform or can the customer come in and uh, say, I want to have X instrument and this instrument? Uh, uh, does it really matter what type of instruments do they want? So the type of instrument per se, uh, we are payload aseptic. We don't really care as long as they can make it work 
within the mechanical and electronical constraints that we deliver to them in our development kit and in our software platform QBR. If they make it work there, we can guarantee that that we will be working as well on, on the satellite. But we don't care if they want to put an optical payload or a telecommunication payload or a scientific payload or just demonstrate a new material or a new technology. We are completely payload receptive and we have built our technologies in a way that modularity allows as much flexibility and configurations uh, for, for, for our customers. We call it mass customization for satellites, actually, because this is where we believe it empowers. And how many people are working for the company now? So we've been doubling the size of the company every six months since I founded the company. Uh, right now we are 26. Uh, as a matter of fact, 27, because this morning uh, uh, another engineer joined. And uh, we still have to double the size of the company once more before the end of the year. So if you look at our website, uh, open-cosmos.com, and you go to the career page, you will see that there are like 25 or 20 something uh, open positions right now that we are actively looking for. Now, in terms of competitors, do you feel that you have anybody out there that's competing in the same space? I mean, there are other companies like Clyde Space who produce satellites for customers, small satellites, but in terms of offering this full solution that you're talking about. Um, is there anybody that's really a competitor for you? Um, I, I haven't seen anyone that encapsulates absolutely everything that we do. I've mentioned that we do build the satellite, we do test, uh, we do do the integration, we also do the launch procurement, but I haven't mentioned, for instance, that we also do the frequency locations for our customers, all the paperwork, all the insurance, we negotiate the insurance in bulk for our customers since we have a quite a standardized technology approach. We operate the satellites for our customers and at the end we even can set up their servers if, if they want so we can gather the data and distribute it uh, directly to them. Uh, so with this full scope of service, I haven't seen anyone. And it is true that this is a very complex offering and very, very broad offering. And uh, traditionally, what companies like uh, Clyde, for instance, that you mentioned, but many others, what they have to traditionally been doing is focusing on one part of that value chain. Clyde, for instance, started with subsystems, now has expanded into, into satellites. Uh, there are other companies that are just doing launch brokering. A good example of that, for instance, is NanoRacks. Uh, and there are some other companies that are specializing just in operations. Um, we believe that our value comes in uh, putting everything under one single umbrella, under one single one-stop shop offering, and owning the know-how on each one of those areas, and particularly on the manufacturing and integration of the satellite, and particularly on the integration of the payloads in a flexible way, so, so we can gather um, a wide range of data and fly a wide range of payloads for our customers. That's that's where we believe we have a, a key differentiator. All right. You must be doing something right because, uh, like you said, you've been around for three years. You've gotten some customers. But uh, just as importantly, or more importantly, depending on how you look at it, 
Um, you recently closed a $7 million uh, Series A round of funding. Um, that, uh, that must have felt great. Who, who are your backers and, and, and do you plan on, what do you plan on doing with these funds? Yes, so uh, our backers uh, are VC funds. Uh, the major one, the, the leading VC in our round is BGF. Uh, which is uh, one of the biggest funds here in the UK. They have traditionally been doing uh, private equity. So this is a fund of uh, two point, I think it's nearly three, three billion uh, on investment, but I wouldn't be able to take the numbers, billion with B of, of pounds. And uh, um, as I said, I think, I think they, they have started now doing investments in, in the field of, of venture capital as well. And, and the space sector is one where they saw a massive potential. Alongside with them, we have uh, a great, um, well-renowned fund here in the UK that is called Local Globe. Entrepreneur First also follow up on the round, so they wanted to continue working with us. And uh, what what will we be? And, and a few very very important angels, by the way, as well. Uh, we have we have Tavit, who was one of the co-founders of Transferwise, one of the few unicorns that they have been here uh, in Europe. And uh, Charlie, Charlie Sonhorst, who's, who was one of the biggest strategists at, at Microsoft. Um, so we've we've put together a round that that has. Uh, I think a, a great support and knowledge about the industry and a will to, to help us grow and a scale quickly. The reason why we put the round together, um, it was because, uh, as you well said, we want to accelerate our developments even faster. We, we have always been selling from the, as I mentioned, from the third month of the company, we have sales and revenue that have been fueling and powering the company. If you, if you ask me what we have been doing right, that is what we have been doing right. We have been selling and delivering from very early. Uh, and we could have continued growing the, the company organically. We could have continued selling, reinvesting the money that we were getting into growing further. But um, if, if we want to start delivering um, to all the pipeline of customers that we currently have going, we need to step up and we need to set a facility that is capable of manufacturing 30 satellites a year. Uh, I need to grow the team very aggressively, getting the best global talent uh, and uh, in, a, in, in, in all the different fields because we, as I mentioned, we we go through the entire offering for for the space sector and uh, that required capital not not a lot of capital um, initially I, I was looking to raise something like four or five millions eventually we realized that that seven millions would be more appropriate so we went with that figure and we just stick exactly to the uh, minimum amount of capital that we really needed in order to accelerate at the rate that we we feel will make us a very competitive and very customer oriented company. So that was the reason for the round, and that's that's the players that that have joined us in that. Now you mentioned that uh, Charlie Songhurst was one of your backers. How did you get him on board? <laughs> so uh, we we met actually when I did the demo day at uh, Entrepreneur First. <laughs> That's where. So one of the key things that we've done with all our investors is we've been building relationships with them for a long time. This was back to uh, nearly two years ago, and uh, um, 
what I've tried is to to have conversation with the people that I believe could help us most. So I met Charlie at at the demo day of Entrepreneur First. Since there, we started having conversations about the strategy, about how to disrupt an industry. He had obviously seen the disruption that had happened in the in the computer and in the software industry, and uh, we we thought that that was a great art because we we need to bring that mindset and that strategic mindset to the way that the the space industry works. Uh, And uh, with the other investors, exactly the same. Uh, One of the main reasons why we decided to go with BGF, with Local Globe, and not with other great venture capitalists that that also wanted to invest in us was because we had been building a strong relationship with the partners over the course of the first years of, of the company. Um, now, now that you've done a Series A um, and looking forward, would there be any plans at some point to, to go public? Well, I'm, I'm not thinking about that at all. I'm thinking about our customers, about execution and about growth. Um, everything that is beyond <laughs> the following months and being able to, to grow the team, deliver to our customers and keep growing our customer pipeline. Uh, I don't have my mindset of that. Of course, strategically, yes, but not in terms of funding. There are different ways. Like people tend to have IPO as, a, as an ideal exit or people tend to think, I think sometimes about the exit uh, too much. I think that when you are a startup and you are a company in a growth process, um, the obsession has to be satisfying the customer and uh, a further funding routes like uh, an IPO, which eventually is a way to, to get further funding, or, or ad seats will come when they are due. Uh, our obsession is execution and customer satisfaction. All right. So with respect to the satellites that you're offering, uh, the form factors, um, you said the largest one that you have available now is a 12U uh, CubeSat form. Um, Are you thinking of building anything larger in the future or is your focus for the next little while just going to be everything, you know, from 12U down to the smaller ones? So it completely depends, as everything that we do at Open Cosmos, on the customer needs and the customer drive. If we start having a lot of customers asking for a specific type of, of platform that requires to be uh, bigger than, than 12U and that we can still, with the sort of resources and the sort of, of capabilities that we have in-house deliver, we, we will, of course, consider it uh, if, if the customer comes with enough um, money in order to, to, to cover a project of those characteristics, we will certainly consider. What we are seeing right now is that we have spotted a quite nice niche in terms of size and performance um, and a quite efficient way to standardize it through a, a form factor uh, that is um, that is in that range from the 3U to the, to the 12U. And uh, so far, I think that we ha- are being able to accommodate most of the key customers that we see coming over the following year, two years, and in the near future uh, within that, that sort of size of platform. So uh, in terms of the market size, how big do you think the market is for 
the segment that you're you're looking at in terms of dollars on an annual basis? Yeah, so there are many numbers running around about that, and every single year I see them growing in a different way. When when I started pitching to investors, um, I was I was um, checking some of the reports that the UK Space Agency. Uh, said from here and and some of the organizations in the UK were mentioning around a billion for the nano satellite sector and growing at a 23% annual rate. Um, the truth and this is my thoughts about it. Eh? The truth is that when when people put together these reports, no one really knows what is going to happen in this sort of high growth, high potential industry, and. Uh, the reason of that is very simple. It's because this is an, enable, an, uh, an enabling technology, right? And the amount of things that it can enable, it's not dependent on the size of its own industry. It's dependent on how relevant it becomes for other industries. If you ask me, my belief is that remote sensing, for instance, has the potential to impact literally any other industry that you think about. You think about agriculture, you think about transportation, you think about urbanization, you think about insurance, you think about fintech, you think literally any other industry can be impacted by the data that can be gathered globally. And that's one very important thing. The same things happened with, with telecommunication as well. Uh, it's not a secret that we need to be able to communicate globally uh, even better and better, that machines will start communicating among them. And there is a very interesting thing called Internet of Things and machine-to-machine -machine communication, which I believe uh, our sort of satellites, nanosatellites, would be particularly interesting uh, to satisfy that need. Needless to say that low latency sort of services and not huge needs on on the bandwidth would be like uh, absolutely key to solve these sort of problems. So coming back to answer your question, I think that if you look at the figures of the reports, they keep growing every year. Some people say it's it's close to <laughs> to 50 billion a year. Some others say that it's closer to, to 1 billion. The truth is that that different range of numbers that everyone is, is giving is means that people don't really have a clue on how big this can get. And it will be very dependent on how simple we do this technology to people in other industries and how fast are we able to deliver. Because it's always time critical and uh, uh, simplicity critical when you are dealing with people that no, don't know anything about this industry or, or this technology. Okay, I have just a couple of questions left. Um, the first one is, um, when you decided to go to the UK, uh, political, um, the political situation and economic situation in Europe was a little different than it is today. And what I'm referring to is Brexit. So does Brexit have any effect on, on your plans? So that's a very good question. Obviously, it, it was a massive surprise to me to see the, the, the outcome of the vote on the Brexit referendum. I was by no means expecting uh, something like that to happen. Uh, and there has been there since then a period of uncertainty around what's going to happen, how are going to be the relationship between the EU and, and the UK from there. And, and of course that I'm paying a lot of attention to that and seeing how it evolves. 
Now, here's my perspective. When you look at a company of our size, and when you look at at a, a, a startup, and you analyze the risks, where do the risks come from uh, for us to be successful or not? Uh, I think um, it would be unrealistic to say that we are moved by the macroeconomic risks, which are the sort of risks that are uh, triggered with a Brexit problem, right? I think my risks are closer to this particular customer is going to come with me or not, or this contract, am I going to close it or not? This project, will I be delivering it uh, um, this year or next year? So these this sort of risks are the ones that have the most impact. And therefore, Brexit, if you look at it from this strategic overall perspective, um, is, is not something that should be in my priority list of thoughts when, when analyzing the risk of, of something turning uh, badly for Open Cosmos. Now, that said, um, obviously, I was very curious when Brexit happened on how would the relationship between the UK and the European Space Agency be, and how would be the relationship between the UK and the different other sorts of funding and collaborations and export that there is between the EU and, and the UK and the other countries. And um, I must say that I I, I was uh, I am significantly more calm now on some of these aspects because the UK has. Uh, repeatedly uh, expressed that, that they will continue to support with the same amount of, of, of funding and same amount of interest the European Space Agency. As you know, Canada is also part of the European Space Agency, even if it's not in the European Union. And uh, uh, therefore, I think that that we are covered on, on, on that side. And then on the relationship, I think that is for export, for growth, both the UK and the European Space Agency have so much more to win actually on establishing a good relationship that, rather than a bad one, that I think it would be very short uh, and narrow-minded from, from the decision makers to push the, the negotiations and the, the, the decisions in an uncomfortable situation for both. I would have loved the UK to stay in Europe. Uh, don't forget that I am originally from Spain and I am a, a Spanish citizen. A concern that I have also is the the perception that that the dismediatized program, uh, this dismediatized problem, has also uh, implied when, when recruiting. There is a lot of people that now they hear the UK and it seems that oof, it's in the media all the time, so they are a bit more afraid sometimes to go, to, 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 to think about moving into the country or, or moving their families here. But I also think that it's, uh, it's a bit exaggerated because if you think about Switzerland, for instance, uh, people don't have any doubts into going to work in Switzerland, and it would be in a similar situation to the one that the UK would be having uh, after Brexit in the worst case scenario, right? I'm not an expert in all these fields, I'm just sharing my thoughts. Uh, I am concerned and I am vigilant on how the things are evolving, but we have we have other closure things to monitor and uh, things that could impact, impact uh, even f more uh, the growth of a company like Open Cosmos right now. And one last question with the Brexit. What about the labor force? Um, if, uh, and I, I'm afraid I'm not up to speed on, on this portion of the, 
the breakup, uh, what if you're a citizen of Spain uh, and you're working in the UK and you've got free movement through the European Union now, but you don't afterwards? What, what's that going to do for your labor force? It's going to be awful for our labor force if that happens. And uh, for myself as well, as you will say, I'm a, a Spanish citizen. I, I don't, I hope that that doesn't happen. And uh, I don't think it will happen. It would be really, really, really silly from the UK to support uh, all, literally all the technological companies are dependent one way or another of external talent. So it would be very, very, very silly from the UK to have a very aggressive technology oriented uh, government strategy, uh, particularly in the space sector, and at the same time not allowing people from abroad to work in their country. I don't think that's going to happen by any means. And uh, uh, that's, that's why, of, of course, we, we are in an expansion mode and in, in a growth mode, but that's why I do not consider by, by any means to move the headquarters or, or the, the main part of the company from the UK. Because what we, have, what, what, what we have to do is to continue to building a, a solid team uh, um, here in Harwell and grow, growing further so we can deliver on all the, the satellites and the customers that, that are knocking you know, to our door. Okay, so my last question has nothing to do with uh, the business. Um, I ask this of all my guests now. It's sort of a, a personal f- fun question. Um, what books are you reading now that uh, you might want to share with our, our audience, if any? <laughs> yes, that, that's a very good question. Actually, I just finished uh, Sapiens. Uh, it's a wonderful book. I loved it. I must say that it's, it, it has been among one of my, my favorite readings. Uh, um, basically, Sapiens is a book that uh, explains the whole history of humanity from the moment that it starts until now. And I must admit that I'm, I'm eager to start the, the second book that uh, the same author wrote, which is Homo Deus, which uh, it's supposed to be an historical, from an historian perspective, or from an historical perspective, what someone that has studied the, the history of humanity thinks that will happen from now on with technologies like the artificial intelligence, uh, genetics, and uh, uh, hopefully I will find some time this, this weekend to get started with, with that book. Okay. Well, I'd like to thank Rafael for being a guest on, on the SpaceQ podcast. Uh, I hope I can get you on the show in the future as uh, the business develops. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, and thanks for the opportunity to share what we are doing at Open Cosmos with your audience. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the SpaceQ podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash spaceq. We really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca, or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, 
The Space Cube. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.